Chapter 12, Miss Mackintosh, My Darling How arid this life of the imagination had seemed to me, the child, as I had missed my birthday party, should I not also miss my wedding? The night was lonely, seeking its mate. It was now long past ten o'clock, according to the illumined face of the big Ben alarm clock at my elbow, the clock which, though not carved with the ornate figures carved by dreaming horror-lodgers, was yet to be relied on, telling us with accuracy the exact hour for our rising up and for our lying down. And it was set with its alarm, for it was old reliable, according to Miss Mackintosh, who kept it wound each day and would have no tritons dreaming around the clock, no ladies weeping over dead birds no sporting cupids or rosebuds garlanded in its face. It did not repeat the hours, a day being gone when a day was gone, and the nights were no more extensive than the days which were quick and short. An hour was only that hour. There were just such similar clocks in the bedrooms of servants who must awaken at a certain hour, for though time was an illusion, it was not the illusion of servants. All the other clocks in the house were like enchanted cages, each clock having been stopped at a different hour over that period of time when my mother, retiring from the world, had gone to bed, by slow degrees and not suddenly, as if she had hesitated a great deal, as if her decision had not been an easy one to make. Sometimes, in a remote part of the house, especially at night, a stopped clock would suddenly start up, wheezing or musical, seeming to make this one last effort, just as I heard it now, three dim bells sounding in the midnight air, and now, from another corner, there were four bells, and I waited, but the darkness did not lift. That night, yearning only for reassurance, for human contact, and unable to wait until the morning should make all things clear again, fearful that the morning should not bring the light, but that it should bring instead the darkness, I went to Miss Mackintosh's bedroom. Though the details must always seem in, retros in retrospect blurred, and for this reason that they were not, even then, fully realized. Certainly, the visit was not planned, and was like a sporadic moment. The details must be told only through a veil of oblivion, which is itself a medium of memory, for there is no forgetfulness even of the smallest thing. If it is hidden, it is revealed through its absence the sense of the void. I got up out of bed in the luminous, dar in the luminous darkness and sat in a rocking chair by the great bay window, fanning myself with a palm-leaf fan, was Macintosh's, which had the words Drink Coca-Cola written O one one the back oh which had the which had the words Drink Coca-Cola written on the back. I remember clearly. The next thing I remember I had crept out of the silent shrouded house, though where my courage came from summoned by subdued powers I could not have told, for it had come so suddenly, and I should have been ready to do battle with phantoms and monsters and things unearthly and things earthly, and nothing could have frightened me, I thought, not even some small timid rabbit with purple eyes staring through the wild marsh grass, not even an old rapist had there been one lurking in the swollen golden fog this night of illumination and of innocence when I felt my whole being filled with the in inestimable beauty and goodness of life. When I felt that life should answer the quest of the heart, I was free and my heart rejoicing. I had declared my difference from the dreamers and the dreams. I passed the quiescent faces of marble statues, the immobile, the becalmed who seemed ready to awaken from their sleep, the unmoving who seemed ready to move as small wings stirred sleepily in the moonlight, almost as bright and refulgent as day. 
The beauty, the unity of nature, the sublime harmony of this great enterprise, I felt that the stars and the heavens were real, not merely flickering lights, that there had been no cosmic joke, no conjurous trick played upon us to make us believe that which could not be believed, that all does not fade at a touch, that all does not dissolve at a breath, that we are not the shadows. The eyeball was made to see with this nearly spherical mass having been set in the bony cavity of this nearly spherical skull for this purpose of vision, that we might see, and all the world repeated the pattern of the rounded eye. The organ of sight was repeated as the spot on a peacock's tail, the eyes gleaming among the tail feathers, the hole through the needle, the center of a flower. Also the ears were made to hear with, they being the chief passageway of the human spirit, the tongue to taste with, the nose to smell with, the skin to touch and feel with, and the skin was a drum of all our senses, blurred and commingling, for the brain was but the unfoldings of the skin, and we were the masterpieces of nature. Also the hair was made as filaments to cover the animals of man, the hair being an outgrowth of the skin like the feathers of a bird, the feathers ruffling in the wind, the hair being also like another sense, the hair rising to warn us of our mortal danger, even when all other senses fail. The most beautiful ladies of history have been noted for their hair. Men in olden times had let their hair grow long, and Absalom was caught among the apple boughs and hanged by his hair, for he had rebelled against his father. The organ of sight, the orbit of vision, was protected by eyelids. That part of the movable skin with which an animal covers or uncovers the eyeballs, which, if there were no eyelids, even the eyelids of transparency, could not shut out the vision and could not give a merely tentative regard, could only look fixedly as in wonder or fear, and also by the eyelashes, the fringe of hair that edges the eyelids and shuts out fine particles of dust and sand and salt, and protects the eyes from the burning sunlight and from watering or weeping, as when one walks in the eye of the wind, going almost opposite from the way the wind blows, going nearest the wind. Without eyelid, one would stare at the face of one's love, even as one stares at death until another closes his eyes, for dead men are usually found with their eyes open. While we are alive, we are privileged to close our own eyes and sleep. Also, the eyebrows are made to protect the eyes, but Leonardo had forgotten to give eyebrows to his Mona Lisa, or perhaps the omission was intended, I thought, to add beauty to the mystery of her face. I was free, having no sense then of the imploring past, no sense of the power of the barren, the power of helpless and impotent things, nor the presentiment that, that what does not exist, what does not exist, exists if we believe in it. The pregnant moonlight streaked the pebbled mist with fine golden hairs, braids, and curls. There were faces pulsing in the vacancy of mist, and the wind was filled with flat or rounded eyes. There were sleek and shining backs, ethereal gleamings of scales and fins. I stood in the garden of the blind, which has, had been created for one whose eyes were as missing, for one who had suffered the absence of a sense, the absence of a world of vision and light, my happiness seemed boundless. That was, that this was the garden of the blind could surely in no way have influenced my own clarity of vision in that amorphous, wet, clammy night of clouds and whirling fogs. Even though I have wondered ever since, what is the influence of place? Are there places which seem to breed their special sorrow? That sorrow which colors the atmosphere often with the most elusive clouds, like the memory of a nature already dead? That sorrow making the stones cry out, the leaves fall, making the trees bend in contorted shapes, as if under some imponderable weight of a more than human grief? 
Was it from me or from the world around me that sorrow came just when I was happiest? There were in that invisible garden vague ghostly flowers and vines from which the flowers had been washed away. The ground was matted with wet, steaming flowers. There were gray spots and sparrow blindness set in the mist of wandering vegetation. There were knotted growths like the malignants of abundance. There were here no marble statues, nothing which should meet the eyes alone, nothing which should be the obstacle, the stumbling stone to the blind. The bushes were thin-branched and full of eyes which gleamed with an unholy iridescence, and the pale colors of the night seemed not to take cognizance of the absent sense. One might see with one's fingers, unthinking my happiness self-evident, I stood in that sad, empty garden which my mother's methodical father, long years ago, had planted not for vision, nor for point of view, nor for even a hidden perspective, but for the commingling of odorous blooms and the braille texture of flowers, whorls, petals, clusters, stamens, which should move under the moving, visionary fingertips of his blind wife, as, according to legend, she had used to walk with certain steps a circular path in the morning or evening light, which had been but enclosed in her far from imaginative brain a practical household memory and nothing else. She being, when she was alive, the most immediate of persons, it was always said, given to no far flight of fancy, no understanding whatever of things chimerical, arguing with her voluble black coachman about the colors and formation of the, formations of the clouds, whether it looked like rain or the clouds would pass away, and choosing from her wardrobe the dress or scarf most inconspicuous, a dim, muted shade, the rose, the gray, the neutral blue which should fade into a quiet landscape. She had never cared much for works of art, only when she was blind, stone blind, had touched the stone faces, tracing the features which seemed to move, the lips, the flaring nostrils, the ears, the eyes, the stone birds roosting among the stone curls, the horned foreheads. I had closed my eyes. There were only these flowers, most heavily freighted with sensual odors, the forms without color and void, as when darkness moved on the face of the deep, sweet william, cosmos, rose geranium, phlox, nasturtium, nicotiana, flowers of the old Jerusalem, flowers of the new Jerusalem, the suffusion of beings like an idea in the mind, one which hovers only at the threshold of realization. Under my dreaming fingertips there move the lips of flowers, their tongues, horns, valves, their tiny ears like shells, their tiny feet and hands, their spines and ribs and hair. I opened my eyes that I might not feel estranged. My forehead throbbed. Little could I have realized, for my heart had been filled with preternatural joy, my first vision of the wonders and glories of this planet, glimmer and shine of flowers and leaves and birds' breasts, like multiple moons shining in ineffable light, the first vision would also be the last. Could I have foreseen? Should I have turned back? Should I have gone on? I should be surely struck between the eyes by the cold horror underlying all mortal things, and the beauty of that horror more beautiful than life. I should surely see, underlying the restricted routine of days and nights, another meaning than any I had seen, that nothing had been as it had seemed, that, though there had been hallucinatory visitors in my mother's gold and ivory bedroom, such phantasmal beings as Mr. Chandelier or Mr. Chanticleer, or the merry-go-round horses, their poles lost in the vaulted ceiling of heaven, or old pontiffs walking in the mist, they were as nothing. 
I had unwittingly entertained that which was far more horrible because it was real, the flesh, the blood. What a different perspective then there should be on all that was past, how it should be altered, how it should be transmorgified when I saw, even in the candor of imperfect truth, the beautiful and horrifying disrelations of the spiritual, that there was no perfection, that there had always lain, just beyond the threshold of my secure vision, this other vision I had not been conscious of, and perhaps, and had perhaps not even glimly, dimly glimpsed, significances which had escaped me, even though there had been, as Miss Mackintosh had always said, a place for everything, and if I was deceitful or wasted my time with daydreaming, then I must box a sandbag dummy or run a mile along the beach of running sand in order to restore my circulation and my waning common sense. Always over my head even then, though it had seemed more like a promise than a threat, she had held the ruthful possibility that she might some day leave me. As she was not getting younger, she might decide to retire, she had threatened. For there were even then those calm and airless days when her breath came short, when her lips turned blue and her skin lost its natural color, turning to saffron, turning as gray as stone, and so full of minute cavities that it was very light. She might retire, and that was why she was so frugal and sparing, saving even the soap coupons to exchange for crockery. I should not need her when I was old enough to know my own mind, and to live in a useful circle, or be perhaps only a poor little shoemaker's wooden wife, if that should be the way of the lost world. She had sacrificed her life to a cause, which was perhaps doubtful, lost from the first beginning. She had given up all vanity, all luxury, and personal preference. I remembered. Had I not been, when she first saw me, a much wilder person than I had become, as she would sometimes say, tapping my forehead with a great silver thimble, on which was carved the inscription Juliet, 1899. At the age of seven, I had been a nervous wreck, baying like a dog at the moon, pretending, in fact, that I was a dog, and often digging for a bone in the garden. With firm hand and true, however, Miss Mackintosh had restored me to my senses when I had already seemingly lost them. When even Mr. Spitzer had been on the verge of giving up hope, she had taken over, solving most problems by ignoring them, never losing her clear way, her moral principles which distinguished sharply between right and wrong, her excellent, narrow mind. She had taught me a profound respect for who was real, such as herself or Mr. Spitzer, and who was not real, should never stand in our way. If fog obliterated us, we needed no other obliteration, as she frequently remarked. Even if she was dead, she would not waste her time dreaming. No sorry, sir. She held my attention by yelling louder than the dead, louder than the waves. How should I have heard at the age of seven a rooster crowing when there was no rooster? Have seen its golden spurs and cockles, its red combs, or have imagined that a wireless was attached to my head so I might hear the voices of the dead? How should I have been deceived to believe that I held musical discourses with an old-fashioned gentleman? who wore a snuff-colored velvet coat and white breeches and white peruke, like the crown of a bird, and carried under his arm an ivory-lidded music box filled with the buzzing of wild honeybees. How should I have imagined at that early age that I was the reincarnation of Chopin, because of the tinklings of piano keys so constant in my head, the patterns of old polkas and mazurkas and faded ballrooms where my mother, when she could walk, though this exceeded her memory, had danced with pigeon-toed, ambiguous Mr. Spitzer, Perhaps with two Mr. Spitzers, one who had died, one who had lived? 
How should I, at that early age, have concluded that dreams are superior to the limitations of realities, that dreams are limitless, the sinister walls existing between persons, that the sleeping life, that which I saw around me, was to be preferred infinitely to the cause and effect sequences of the waking life which had its reason and its purpose? Through the disconnected, reflective, lily-margined pools I had visited each night in my sleep, and the snowy train of twelve white swans, like brothers or suitors, bewitched who fed at the gilded margins shadowed by reeds. Though these seemed desperate, these disparate, these had provided greater beauty and enchantment and unity of life than the organic stream of narrow, invisible experience could possibly have done, and were perhaps in fact themselves also organized and continuous and streaming, so that they might go on separately toward an identical goal, even like dark, dark rivers. I had concluded that though the dreamer waked not again from sleep, though his breath should be stilled and should stir no feather in the air, yet death might be proved, as his dream existed and continued, emerged with the dream of others, to be nothing but an old humbug, an impostor, and in position bearing no grain of truth. The truth was only in the erroneous dream, the bridge between life and death. This was not to be, however, as I was taught the case according to an old nursemaid taking over the tight reins. When nothing had happened, I was supposed to admit, quite simply, that nothing had happened, that not a leaf had fallen, that not a blow had struck, that not a wave had broken, that not a shadow had stirred, for neither I nor any other mortal was God, and the omniscience had not been given to us, fortunately, so that we could not see everything, or we should all most certainly lose our minds and go stark, raving mad, screaming, tearing out our hair. There was simply one must deduce still from her, all her energetic caustic certainties, and I believe them that Miss Mackintosh, even though she might go against the grain, was right. No shadowy borderland where that exists, which does not exist, where headless horsemen ride about in purple fog, where old emperors play water polo, polo, or men have heads like dice, or if there was, then it was God's murky business, and not ours to tamper with or change. For God had suffered due to this erroneous creation, had it quite frankly been filled with the greatest remorse ever since the day of the beginning, which was not too far different from the day of the end. Things had not turned out exactly as he had expected. Things had not developed. Things had gone somewhat awry. But that was not our affair. For God did not ask us to set up his trade, and God did not ask us to understand his traffic. And we should do well enough to attend to our own knitting and frugal wants, and take our constitutionals in the sweep of sunlight barred by fog. We were very plain. We were intended for no high and mighty office, no vast estate, no imaginary diadem, no fine feathers, nothing which should set us apart from others. The wisest man was a fool in God's eyes, and there was a fool bound in the heart of every child. The oldest man was but an infant, puny and crying, reaching for the stars which should not be very different from this old lost earth with its vexations. We cannot command the waters to stand still, the stars to subside, nor was it our task to move the heavens and the earth and earth's foundation. They would doubtless move of themselves soon enough. They were already moving. Indeed, we were put here rather to endure ourselves than to test God, who required no judgment of ours, and not that we meddle in his remote business, and not that we unlock his deep mysteries, and not that we dream our lives away. We were not like those fishes who must seek out only the darkest waters, those flowers which open only at night, when the honest man was he who walked upright and showed his face to others and had nothing to conceal. He cheerfully spoke to his neighbors. Love, what was love? 
How should Miss Mackintosh know what love was? She could only guess, her face blurred by watery vagueness. Love was not an inquiry beyond what meets the natural eye. Love was undoubtedly greatest love which could see another's face in daylight and hear another's voice. There was no better test than harsh experience. As for herself, her face was not. It was simply not her fortune. Being just one face in a million, for who was she but a plain, old-fashioned, unvarnished spinster? Her shirtwaist bristling with needles and pins, as if to forbid inquiry, suggest that hers was not a good shoulder to weep on. Stuff and nonsense that perhaps there was a time which had not passed, that perhaps it was we who passed through time. She would not give a pin for such innocuous suggestions wavering like crests of foam. They made less difference to her than a leaf falling, for it was her self-evident position that when something is gone, then there is no return, nor did she seek discoveries which might disturb the earnest thought. Her fortitude was this, to keep her feet solidly planted on earth, which was not solid, never to let her head drift among the drifting clouds, to do her work of retribution for some old guilt not conceived by her, to make the best of matters and indulge in no self-pity. She could not soar upwards on wings of words to heaven, she had always said so, for words were meaningless to her, and she was very stout-minded, carrying a stout umbrella, and she was a middle-brow, and she was a middle-westerner, and she was middle-aged. She had only one face, one form, one heart, this old body which would not last a lifetime. She had not two faces, one to turn toward the world, one to turn toward heaven. There was not even the remote possibility of something else. There was nothing of the errant dreamer in her character, and none should catch her dreaming. Little could she have understood, it seemed then, these necessary dualities of darkness and light, which others seemed to live by, the self-contradictions. My mother's often entertained suspicion, for example, that Mr. Spitzer was far and away from being the altogether substantial, fleshy character he seemed, as sometimes, as in a protracted wakeful dream, he imagined himself to be his dead brother, and with a remarkable knowledge of horse-flesh, considering his own ignorance, put his bet on the dark horse, which would come in first and which he considered to be spiritual, a phantom like himself, or he would seem to be on familiar terms with dead jockeys, humped upon their saddles, those of the Tramontane regions, those lying beyond the snow-peaked Alps, where his dead brother had never been.